Argent with snow are the peaks of Caucasus. Over the hills and fields of Circassia, I have seen the unbegotten light shine. Forehead hands have shed it. It traversed from within the round hills. That's the first five lines. It's the first sentence of the poems. And then the last five lines, among the books, the maps, the medallions, a painting hangs on the wall of contemplation. It opens on the fabulous imperial province. Even while the hills, the fields, unveiled, opened, moved half by sensation, half by interpretation, I added to the cycle of Arthur a significant line. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Hey Serena, how's it going? Christopher, how about with you? Doing just fine. Doing just fine. Listeners, if you're just joining us, which I don't know why you wouldn't be because this is the beginning of the podcast, but but Serena Higgins is here to talk to us about a discovery that she made over the last few days. Serena, you were at the Wade Center recently um, and, and made a discovery. Tell us the story. Okay, great. So I'm not sure if all the listeners would know, but the Marion E. Wade Center is a research archive at Wheaton College in Illinois, and it features the work of seven writers, the four main inklings, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and then also three people sort of associated with their circle. That's G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, and Dorothy L. Sayers. So I was there to work on my upcoming book, The Oddest Inkling, An Introduction, to Charles Williams, which I'm happy to be uh, publishing through Apocryphile Press. But I didn't really have a detailed research plan while I was there. I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for other than are there any gaps in my knowledge? So I was just pulling boxes and files of materials from the archives. And I can get into all of that. But how about we jump to the discovery and then we can contextualize it more. So on Wednesday of the week that I was there, I discovered 11 Arthurian poems that I was reasonably certain had never been published. So that was super exciting. Super cool. (laughs) Now it turns out a couple of them have been published in very, very small venues, like very small newsletters, journals, bulletins, but they've never been collected in a volume. And then on Friday afternoon, 45 minutes before the archive closing on our last day there, I discovered a folder that had never been signed out by anyone else from the archive before, because there's always a cover sheet where you sign your name and the date that you're signing it out and when you sign it back in. And no one had ever touched this archive since it was deposited there, or this folder, since it was deposited there in the 70s. And it contains hundreds of pages of additional Arthurian poetry. Wow. It was called The Advent of Galahad. I'll get into details in a minute. And then there was another folder that contained, well, there were two, 70 pages and 68 pages and another that contained material labeled Jupiter over Carbonek. We'll get into all the nuances in a few minutes, but the bottom line is there's still unpublished Arthurian poetry by Charles Williams. 
and my publisher, Apocryphile, is happy to bring it out in whatever format we decide is best. That is super cool. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Wow. For those especially who haven't read much Charles Williams, what are these unpublished poems kind of about? What do they deal with? And and say as much as you feel comfortable saying, obviously, sure. before it's yeah. published. Well, and also the fact that I discovered the bulk of these 45 minutes before closing, I didn't actually get to read them. I got to type up the table okay. of contents yeah. and flip through the pages to, to get some idea of what they are. Um, and now I'm in dialogue with other scholars who are also studying these materials. So during his lifetime, Williams published three volumes of poetry that were primarily concerned with retelling the myths and legends of King Arthur. And his particular angle was to choose a character called Taliesin, who is a real life historical poet, a Welsh poet, but Williams moved him to the court of King Arthur and made him Arthur's court poet and also a master of horse and a soldier and so forth. And so he, he tells the story largely through the perspective of this poet who has kind of a spiritual perspective on the spiritual interrelationships among the characters and especially into the importance of the Holy Grail. So it looks like the majority of these poems are something of that kind as well. Um, there are several with Taliesin's name in the title. There are some with other characters. So it looks like the poems might be spoken from other characters' points of view as well. Um, but they're all adding to his very particular retelling that focuses on his major themes of coherence and the affirmative way and the importance of the grail. So to recap, you found 11 poems that had not previously been collected and published, but they were published in minor sort of places. Not totally sure yet. I okay. haven't checked each title against mm -hmm. all the different journals and things. There's one of them I'm skimming through right now while we're talking. There's one of them called, I'll tell you the title as soon as I find it that actually I was looking through the Charles Williams quarterly for something else yesterday and bumped into that title. So they oh, republished cool. that, they, they published that particular one, but it's never appeared in, in a full collection. Uh, it was called Percival's Song of the Terror Farrain of the Foreign Land. Okay. So that, that one I know is in the Charles Williams quarterly. Cool. Now, as I said, I've been talking to several other Charles Williams scholars since this happened, David Dodds, Greville Lindop, Eric Rauscher, Stephen Barber, and others. And it seems that the majority of the pieces I found are drafts or ideas for or early versions of ones that have been published. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a discussion to have about their value as standalone pieces. Mm -hmm. They may not be worth <laughs> publishing in a volume because they might be more drafts. Right. And this um, is the 11 pieces this is or is this the everything? Okay. Apparently, okay. Yeah. apparently, yeah. but regardless of that, they're still interesting showing the regularly process. So yeah, even absolutely. if they're not worth publishing an individual volume, they could still be in some kind of an edition that shows the history yeah. of these poems, the different versions they went through. So then let me go over, let me go over the, the three sort of sets of things. If that's Sounds okay. good. Sounds yeah, good. So the, the first set are the 11 individual ones. These were in a, fo a folder called 
a century of poems to Celia. Now we've known about that, a century meaning a hundred poems, but there are far more than a hundred in the folder. There are a couple mm. of hundred. <laughs> there are a hundred that Williams sort of collected as being the official century. And then there are others. And so I found the 11 in there mixed in amongst these other poems written to Phyllis Jones, the woman that he fell in love with in 1924. And those are interesting from a variety of perspectives, but um, among others, because they position Celia as a, a character or at least a point of meaning in the cycle, which is not obvious in the revised and published versions that he put out in his lifetime. So he, he positions Celia as Byzantium hmm. and has a poem told by Taliesin in the first person, positioning Taliesin as Carbonek, which is the place of the grail. Byzantium is where the emperor lives, who's a figure of God. And it turns out that she is actually a princess of Byzantium. So she's a, a daughter of the emperor, a daughter of the God figure, but she's in this very important uh, spiritual political position in the cycle, which is written out of later published versions. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. So that's that's the first set of things, the poems that are that are in a century of poems to Celia. So that's that's in a folder called the Wade Charles Williams Manuscript number 171 is a, a poem called On Taliesin's Song and Its First Plan. And that's the one that puts Celia or Phyllis Jones into the myth. Then there's another folder, a manuscript that's labeled Charles Williams Manuscript 176. And it contains another 10 or so Arthurian-related poems, including one that's labeled the 7th of May, 1943, which is very late. Williams died in 45. And this one also seems to have Celia in the myth. Now, that is really important because scholars mm. have thought that Williams had mostly gotten over his romantic feelings for Phyllis Jones by sometime in the 30s. Although he writes in a letter to Lois Lang Sims in 43 or 44, he writes, it's been a number of years since my own impossibility, which is what he called the emotional crisis he went through. Um, but he says something along the lines of that's still painful to him even now. And he, he was even seeing Celia sometimes then in the 40s. So there's a, this poem from May 7, 1943, the Taliesin character kisses the Celia character. So it seems that these thoughts and feelings are still very present to him at that time, at least yeah. as transmuted into the myth in a Beatrician right, way. Right. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask about that. Like to what extent, I mean, is this even Celia anymore? He's got such a this... fictionalizing sort of mind where the, his fiction is sort of, gets projected out on his like actual world right. and, and i wonder to what extent this is evidence of like continuing feelings or if this is just his fiction continuing to exist to in his own mind use her as a figure use right, her right. as an image right yeah, that, that's yeah. an excellent question that is that is the question is the princess named celia or um... she is in that first poem okay. which is from probably the 20s and then she's not named in that okay. one from 43. Yeah. He has a really interesting one called On the Taliesin Poems huh. in that, that later folder. 
and it has a mysterious heading that just says Purgatorio 30. So apparently you're supposed to be familiar enough with Dante that you think, oh, Purgatorio 30. I know the theme of that of one. Of course. And you apply it to this. I think it's a sonnet. He has a, a bit of a draft for the Taliesin in the School of the Poets that ends up getting published later. And then there are some that are just new material that I haven't seen before. There's also a first draft of Taliesin's Song of the Unicorn that's only about half the length of the published version. There's a fascinating fragment that's about the anatomical geography that Williams uses, and it's it's even more explicit and specific in its anatomical references than some of the published stuff. So he writes a poem about, had you encountered before a poem about the actual like overlay of the image of the woman on the map of Europe? I mean, he's already playing with that as early as 1930 in the Heroes and Kings mm -hmm. poetry. Right. And I mean, I guess it's there in the prologue to Talia. Yeah, as well. it is. Uh, it is. Mm -hmm. And it's in, it's hinted at in the Arthurian commonplace book or the Holy Grail notebook that he um, was playing with ever since 1912, since very, very early. Okay. So there, there are hints of it in the other published non-Arthurian poetry. He was always trying to figure out this index of the body. So then we come to another folder, CW Manuscript 29 in the Wade. And there are a lot of poems in this that use Arthurian imagery, characters, terminology, and so forth, but I don't think they would belong in an Arthurian collection because he's using those symbols for other purposes. So there's a really interesting longish one called 10 Years, and it's celebrating the 10th anniversary of his friendship with a young man called Raymond Hunt. Hmm. Now, Raymond Hunt was one of his students at the evening literature classes at the City Literary Institute in London, sort of like an adult continuing ed program for working right. working men and women to take classes in the evenings. And Raymond Hunt became such a devoted disciple of Charles Williams that he followed him around whenever he taught anywhere else and kept 20 some odd notebooks of detailed notes of every lecture Williams ever gave, except sometimes when Raymond was absent and he even noted that, and other places Williams spoke and sermons and even hmm. private conversations. Like there are notes of a conversation between Eliot and Williams about measure for measure. Huh. So Raymond Hunt was this devoted disciple. Yeah, he's like after, his, his Boswell. Exactly, his Boswell. Yeah. Very much so, although he never turned it into prose. So that That's too bad. To be done. Yes. Yeah. And somebody needs to sit with the Raymond Hunt notebooks and compare the notes to all the published essays to see if there's additional material. And then Hunt became his literary executor and is the one who left a lot of this material to the Marion Wade Center. So this is a long poem just, just praising Raymond for their friendship and for how well Raymond understands him, but he positions him as a figure in the myth as well. He doesn't seem to position him as a specific character in the myth, just as a member of the company, which is sort of like a member of the round table or of Taliesin's personal household or companions. And he also quotes Hopkins in that poem, as well as Dante. So it's a multi-layered intertextual piece. And then there are other poems that are dedicated to specific people whom Williams knew, Margaret Douglas, in which he puts them into the myth. Like he says to Margaret Douglas, were not Blanche Fleur and you on the deck where dove's wings drove the companions from Carbonex? So like, weren't you on that ship <laughs> with the Grail Knights? 
And the answer is no, but obviously yes. In mm. his usual way of abolishing time and space. Yep. There are two others to Margaret Douglas, another for M.M., whom I do not immediately know who that might be. A fascinating one, untitled. The first line is, urgent with snow are the peaks of Caucasus. And it's about himself as Arthurian poet. I have seen the unbegotten light shine, he says. And he goes through, again, very specific anatomical imagery for the empire. Some of the lines get reused in published poems. But the last line I find fabulous. It's the end of a very long sentence about the different books and paintings, the works of art that have been made on Arthuriana, that all of all of these creative people have mm. contributed to the legend. And he ends by saying, I added to the cycle of Arthur a significant line. Mm. <laughs> and it, it, that's a beautiful sort of um, hashtag humble brag. Yeah. Kind of line, right? Because he's like, oh, I only added one line to the entire body of Arthurian poetry, but it's a significant line. And I added to the cycle of Arthur. <laughs> that's pretty great. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say that's probably about right. Just a line, you think? Yeah. Not even a couple. Uh, well, not I even mean, a haiku. We'll see. I mean, your your work <laughs> is to popularize Arthurian poetry a great deal more. And yeah. you're, you're working on this annotated edition of his Taliesin cycle. So it, it could be that it's more than a line. I mean, usually if people have heard of Charles Williams, they've heard mainly of his of his novels, novels. right? Where, you know, he considered his most important work to be his poetry, right? To what extent does this now change your plans as a scholar of Charles Williams? It just means that I better live two or three decades longer than <laughs> the usual span. <laughs> because then there are the two the two really big folders, the one that's called the Advent of Galahad. And I need to go through that whole table of contents and see which ones appear in David Dodd and John Matthews Arthurian Poets volume published by Brewer and which ones are collected elsewhere. But then there's also a folder of Jupiter over Carbonek. Yeah, that is, is fascinating. Yeah, that's what the name that? of the manuscript that he was working on when he died. His okay. idea was to go back and rewrite all of his Arthurian poetry in a longer, more narrative style now that he felt his, his, he had matured as a poet. Um, and it, there, there are 70 pages in one Jupiter over Carbonek folder and 68 in another but it, it looks like one of them was typed was typed versions of the handwritten ones, which hallelujah, because his late handwriting is very difficult to read. Yeah, I was going to ask about his handwriting. He had a neurological disorder that caused him to shake. Uh, so his handwriting is gets more difficult to read as he gets older. It's oh, beautiful. Shoot. He has a beautiful yeah. distinctive D with a curly tail that uh, makes it easy to tell if it's his writing. And if it's at the end of a word, like ended, then the curl sort of curls back over the word. So it sort of hovers like a balloon over the word. It's very beautiful. But his writing is also very small, very small in the vertical measurement and sort of elongated in the horizontal. So I find it difficult hmm. to read. So Jupiter over Carbonek, why, you know, at, at first hearing that you're like Jupiter, but that's Roman mythology. But I assume he's talking about astrology there or? <laughs> sort of. 
the symbolism of Jupiter in the published Taliesin poems has to do with Jupiter's red spot. You know, that thing that we now know uh, is a monstrous hurricane that's that's mm -hmm. there forever. But Jupiter is the king, of course, the kingly figure in astrological, mythological lore and even classical lore. But then it has this bleeding spot. So it's a wounded king. Mm, uh... So in a figure, it is Christ with the wound in his side. It is King Peles, the Grail King, with the wound in his thigh or in his loins that makes himself and his land barren. But Williams goes a step further. Listener warning, awkward content coming. <laughs> that he layers it with the symbolism of women's menstruation. And he says that because women bleed, they are there symbolically, therefore symbolically identified with the sacrifice or the victim, not the priest who serves, and therefore they can't be ministers. Okay. Or priests okay. or preachers. So this is why women can't be ordained according to Williams, which I think pretty quickly breaks down even on a symbolic level because Jesus is both the vict both the sacrificial lamb and the priest serving it. So yeah, the fact that, yeah. you know, and obviously any human can bleed. Right. So right. I think I think this, this, the imagery breaks down even on his own terms, yeah, yeah. never mind on larger terms. But that's the symbolism of Jupiter and then Carbonek being the place of the grail. So it's kind of like this, this images of kingly wounding coming together with the grail cup that caught Christ's blood from the cross. And the goal is to achieve the grail, which means somehow partaking of that blood whether it's drinking the wine in the in the eucharist or whether it's shedding one's blood in some other sacrificial way like in in battles for logras or in a spiritual sacrifice i realize i just made that all up on the fly i think it's accurate <laughs> but i we'll mean we'll you never know stuff. right but it's it's exciting for for sure and it's you know williams better than anyone i know well, it's about a half a dozen others yeah. to whom i would defer so i'm consulting with all of them to see what we've got and i will i will approach the estate the copyright holders talk to them about what they want to do and we'll figure out what the best way is to proceed with this material So you asked a little while back, how will this affect me as a scholar? Yes, I, I think it. I think it just gets pushed a little bit down the the list of projects because I have to finish the Oddest Inkling first, the introductory mm -hmm. book, this slender, maybe hundred page volume, written on a popular level to introduce mm -hmm. anyone to Williams. Finish that first, yeah. and then my collaborators and I, who are hoping to annotate the Arthurian works, we were going to start with just the published volume Talies through Logris and see how well that goes to see if we're doing a good job annotating it, see how the book is received and then move on. So it's not like we have to immediately decide what to do with all of this material, you know, whether to see if there's a journal that wants to print the unpublished things or whether Brewer wants to do an updated edition or whether there should be a new volume. We don't have to decide immediately but I could, cool. you know, I could write something about the material sooner than actually publishing the material yeah. to make others yeah. aware of it and i'll say this too to you chris and to all of your listeners i'm working on a database of all the scholars who are currently doing charles williams work because i'd love for us all to talk to each other and figure out how to divide the material how to avoid duplication who has what who has copies of things who has permission to publish things so that we can most efficiently work on getting the material out there very cool. That's great. Yeah. Are you are you allowed to read part of 
one? Is that something that would violate something you've set up with Apocryphile or anything like that? Or have uh, nothing set up yet because okay. it's poetry, especially. We want to be very careful. So I wouldn't want to read yeah. more than say 10 lines total. Right. So let me think what might be the most powerful to read. All right, I'll pause for a minute and you can cut this boring bit out while I <laughs> figure what to read. And then, and then Chris, I want to talk about something else that came about the Wade too. Let me pick one of the longer pieces. Maybe it should be the one in which he talks about his own place in the, what do you think? When he talks about his own place in the myth? Yeah, please. That sounds great. Okay. Which one was it again now? Oh. <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll read the first five lines and the last five lines of this untitled fragment, Argent with Snow are the Peaks of Caucasus. And it's page 120 out of Charles Williams manuscript number 29. Argent with Snow are the Peaks of Caucasus. Over the hills and fields of Circassia, I have seen the unbegotten light shine. Forehead hands have shed it. It traversed from within the round hills. That's the first five lines. It's the first sentence of the poem. So you notice the anatomical imagery, this idea of unbegotten light or the Einsof, right? The primal light mm -hmm. from which all creation is an emanation. I'm not 100% sure of my transcription. Forehead hands have shed it forehead and hands, maybe I'm missing a comma. Maybe he was just drafting it quickly. Um, and then the last five lines, among the books, the maps, the medallions, a painting hangs on the wall of contemplation. It opens on the fabulous imperial province. Even while the hills, the fields unveiled opened, moved half by sensation, half by interpretation, I added to the cycle of Arthur a significant line. Very nice. So now in it. context more, you know that the line is also like a line on a map, right? Mm -hmm. A boundary or a path or a road or a journey, the marker of a province. So it's beautiful. That's super cool. Yeah, it is. So really, really quick before we get to the other thing, in his in his was it Jupiter above Jupiter over over Jupiter over Carbonek. His project was to was it to rewrite his cycle to give it, you said to give it more of a narrative form. Um, That's the idea to make it more of a. Is, is that like how Coleridge rewrote Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner with like little prose pieces? Um, I don't between, think so. Or? I don't think he intended any commentary. Okay. I think he intended to rewrite the verse okay. so that it all hung together and was more consistent in style and in story. Okay. Because if you read Taliesin through Logras and then Region of the Summer Stars straight through, you do not get one continuous narrative. Okay. And that's because okay. they're different perspectives, right? We kind of get the ground level drive through and then the heavenly level flyover right. in the two volumes. But I think his idea was he wanted to make one big volume where he could put everything together consistently, maybe even including the early Heroes and Kings material and the Advent of Galahad material he was working on. But mm. I'm not totally sure about that. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. 
So the other thing I wanted to talk about was something else that happened while I was at the Wade, which is a pair of lectures that occurred on the Wednesday evening, because you were you were saying, you know, my purpose here is to get this material out there to recruit more readers for Williams. But at the same time, more and more disturbing truths about Williams are coming to light. Uh, so <laughs> we had a pair of lectures on Wednesday evening, the first given by Terry Glassby on the novels, the second given by myself on the plays. And they were a fascinating pair of lectures back and forth because Dr. Glassby was focusing on the novels as expressions of William's deep Christianity. And it was a beautiful lecture. I mean, he should be writing the come and read Charles Williams <laughs> materials because <laughs> it was so welcoming. It was all about Williams's focus on love and compassion and substitution. It was an excellent lecture. And then I gave one on the, on the plays in which I was essentially saying, that you have to understand the occult influences, or at least the hermetic and esoteric influences, those words all have slightly different valences, in order to understand his plays. And I also focused a little bit more on some of the elements of William's personal life that make it into the poetry novels and plays that are um, absolutely unacceptable things that he did. I mean, he mm -hmm. was engaged in very disturbing practices that were extremely unhealthy for himself and for others. He seems to have had an addiction to power play games that easily slipped over into abusive conduct. There was one young woman whom he subjected to such emotionally intense experiences that she ended up having a mental breakdown and being bedridden mm. for months afterwards. And then even after giving this talk, I came across other material that I didn't know about in some of the early poetry about the extent of his adulterous, emotional, and somewhat physical but unconsummated affair with Phyllis Jones. So I found some more details mm -hmm. about that the physical part of the relationship went further than um, people initially thought. And then, like I said, there may be some evidence that the relationship continued. Hmm. And I also spoke in my lecture about how some of the hermetic practices that he engaged in went on through his entire life. There used to be an idea that he dabbled in the occult briefly as a youth and then moved past that and became a mature Christian teacher. But that seems to be untrue. He did not dabble. He was a master of the temple in the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross for three different six-month periods. He memorized all of the rituals from the beginning to the very top. And my interpretation is that he only left because he had finished, that he graduated rather than having any uh, disagreements with the group. And then he was involved for 20 years with another group that was not strictly Christian hermeticism. It was much more straight up occult esoteric practices. Hmm. And it seems he only left that one because he left London due to the Blitz. Okay. Moved to Oxford to avoid the bombing. And Do you know what group that was? Yes, it was the Stella Matutina, which was okay. an offshoot of the Order of the Golden Dawn. It was okay. not an officially incorporated group, but the two mm -hmm. leaders had the training documents from okay. the Golden Dawn okay. and used them. Yeah. So because of this, there's an ongoing conversation about should we cancel Charles Williams? <laughs> Is his material in light of his life too disturbing? Should we stop reading and studying him? So this is an ongoing conversation. Yeah. I think not. I think we should not cancel him because I think 
everyone deserves to be canceled because every human being has horrific secrets and sins and proclivities. So I think that we look at the the work with discernment and I think we take whatever is valuable and we speak truth about whatever is harmful. So I think that is a mature way to read and study Charles Williams. And I hope to write about that in The Oddest Inkling and to equip readers to be able to nurture that kind of discernment in their reading of this author or any author. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you about that. I think partly because, um, I mean, you're, you're, part of your project anyway is to make Williams more well-known, right? right? Which you've made fantastic strides toward already. At the same time, given the turn towards a type of moralism, I would say that that a lot of even like mainstream culture has has kind of taken in, in I'd say like recent decades. And, and given also our tendency do I think in part to so many distractions to not give people as much of a chance and and ha- lose patience over nuance? I yeah I I wonder you know in light of further disturbing kind of revelations about Williams' own own life and the way that this even intersected with his work, I I wonder how how we popularize him more when so many of the headwinds seem to be against doing just that. Right. Right. And I probably should have said at the beginning that my trip was, or my lecture was also jointly sponsored by Northwind Seminary that has Mm. a PhD in romantic theology. And that term comes from Charles Williams. Hmm. Now, many members of the Northwind faculty and students and other researchers spent the rest of the week discussing this subject and there will be forthcoming blog posts about it by myself and others. So we were debating what place does Charles Williams deserve in the archive, in the curriculum, on our reading lists, on our shelves, and what do we do with terminology when the terminology itself is tainted. You can think of many terms like this. Another one that came up in discussion was the idea of the true north or northernness. The inklings loved this idea of northernness. That might sound a little weird, but if you think of the tone of Norse mythology, which obviously is Mm -hmm. really popular right now. We love our Thor movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's, there's a certain aesthetic associated with North mythology that some people find really plucks their heartstrings and has this sense of distance and longing for something high and far away and clear and cold. And C.S. Lewis, but all of them just loved this term. But obviously talking about the North and Northernness could get really problematic if you think of it in ethnic terms. Sure. And there are hideous misappropriations of Norse myth going on right now, yes. the most obvious of which is the QAnon shaman storming the capital with a fake quasi completely ahistorical Viking right. helmet <laughs> on his head. <laughs> but there are, you know, there are disturbing quarters of the internet where Tolkien is appropriated for white supremacy. Sure. And, um, so that's just another example. And the term romantic theology is another that has been completely misapplied, but in this case, even by its coiner, even by its founder, Charles Williams had this belief that our 
romantic and sexual experiences are a path to God, almost without exception. And then he used that as a justification for his inappropriate, adulterous and abusive romances and sexual relationships or sexualized, I suppose I could say, relationships. So that's a, that's a big discussion is what do we do with the terminology and what do we do with the work? And I'll just repeat myself, which is I think we comb through it carefully and we celebrate what is excellent. And then we speak about what is not excellent in ways that can help us mature. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great approach. I think one of the things, one of the things for me that I enjoy about literature is that, you know, like Tolkien, I don't view it as primarily allegory or even primarily example, although there are great examples in, in literature, but rather as a more focused mimesis of life, right? That just as life is confusing, so literature is often, you know, you're often in a dark wood trying to figure out where which way to go. And, well said. and doing that in miniature in a poem or a, you know, or a piece of fiction or something like that equips you with the sense and the wisdom or it should to then navigate your, you know, your, your own life morally as well as in a number of other ways. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you, but and if I personally were to cancel Charles Williams, that would be a hideous act of hypocrisy because it would be saying that somehow I'm more righteous and right. I may not have fallen into those particular traps that he has, but who am I to judge that his are worse than mine? Right. Instead, I ought to, you know, confront them and look at look at my own darkness in light of his. I think I mixed the metaphor of light and darkness yeah. there, um, in the context of his um, as yeah. well, and then learn from the beautiful passages of inspiration that he's written. I mean, if if anything else, he certainly has written an aspirational romantic theology he certainly has written one that we can desire to follow even though he certainly did not himself yeah 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 and and there's still there's nothing quite like charles williams there it's he's he's got a distinctiveness to him that is rooted in something i think that's ultimately good even if there are things that are you know not pretty shady as well right but yeah Well, I know you have to go now, but I do. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this exciting discovery. I want to hear more in, in future episodes and, and listeners, if you have thoughts, if you have opinions about anything we've talked about, if you want to know more, feel free to reach out to me and, and you can find Serena. Serena, where can they find you? There are many places, serenahiggins.com. I have a buy me a coffee site where I post updates or the oddest inkling is the blog devoted to Williams. I've already posted about this discovery and there'll be three or more, four more posts, hopefully this week about things related to these research, Wonderful. These research projects. Wonderful. And I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Serena. Thank you listeners. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. encounter full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan <laughs>